0: Last year I decided to upgrade my trusty Apple PowerBook laptop and I like a bargain so I went on eBay and I found a really good model in America. Uh, A couple of years old but it looked really good in the photo. It looked like a trustworthy seller so I bought it and a month or so later it arrived. Um, United Post Parcel Service in my mailbox here and I was very excited as I opened it all up but it had scratches all over it a big ding in the side, and it didn't work. And as I contacted eBay and followed up, it turned out that this guy put photos on the internet different to the computers that he was selling, and then when the photo looked good and you bought that, he would send you a broken one that didn't work, and then he would claim that it was damaged in the post. Now, thankfully, um, eBay and PayPal and all that refunded me in full the $800 for it, Um, but nonetheless, I was deceived. I was tricked and, um, it was, it, it took about six months to get the money back and it was a terrible thing. I don't know if you've ever been deceived like that. Is it, it is a terrible thing to be deceived, to have someone not accidentally make a mistake, um, but to deliberately tell you a lie in order to deceive you or rip you off. Or even worse, in a relationship, someone deliberately to deceive you, to hurt you. I reckon you've been deceived this last week. I reckon you've probably been deceived yesterday. I think maybe even today. Because as we see today in Genesis 3, one of the devil's main strategies that he uses in getting us to disobey God is to deceive us to lie to us about sin and its nature and about God. And that's what we'll be seeing this morning in Genesis 3, where Eve is deceived by a snake, which is actually the devil in the form of a snake. And as Eve talks with the snake, and she's just dragged along step by step, we kind of see each sentence and each dialogue with the snake. She moves one step closer away from God until she gets to the point right at the end where she thinks she knows better than God. And she eats of the fruit. Now, I think it's an important part of the Bible because it helps us understand very clearly what sin is. It helps us to see that sometimes disobeying God can be attractive when we believe the devil's lies. And it also helps us see why disobeying God is so terrible and life destroying. And so it helps us better equipped to serve Jesus. Let's get into Genesis, though. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we don't know a lot about the serpent here from Genesis, except that he was one of the creatures that God had made. But in Revelation 20, the serpent is identified as being the devil. Jesus calls him the father of lies. And that's exactly what we see he will do here as he deceives Eve. He will tell her lies. Now, his question in verse 1 there looks like a harmless enough question, doesn't it? But it's not as innocent as it seems. The question itself that he gives to Eve makes God look stingy. He says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, God didn't say that, did he? If you look back at chapter 2, verse 16, you'll notice this is what God said. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a bit like when a parent says, you're not going to the movies tonight, and then all your friends say, your parents never let you go to the movies, even though that's not true. But it's designed to make them look bad, to make you hate them, to make you resent them, so maybe you'll just disobey them this time. That's what the devil's doing here. It's the first of many lies that the serpent will tell Eve. That's the first lie. God is stingy. God doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding back from you. You're not allowed to eat from any tree in the garden. Well, Eve responds in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we, ain't, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, Eve's response on the surface looks okay, but it's actually quite a sad response when you start to look at it because already Eve has started to, dis- to believe the lie of the devil. She's already moved away from God's word because she's attempting to correct the snake and tell the snake what God actually said, but she makes quite a few mistakes in, what, in quoting God. She changes what God has said, and all these three changes move away from God in a negative direction. They all move towards the serpent's way of thinking. It can sound very noble to sit down and have a religious discussion about God and what his word says with people who don't believe it. But this here for Eve is not an innocent conversation. She is being deceived. Now, I want you to work this out for yourself. Turn to the person next to you and we're going to play spot the difference. So God's command is given to Adam back in chapter 2, verse 16. I want you to put one finger on there. 2, verse 16, that's the command. Eve repeats it in chapter 3, verse 3 with three differences. She's changed three things. Um, I want you to see if you can spot them. Couple of minutes, have a chat about it. They're quite subtle, but they're quite important. There's actually four, but one just seems to be trivial. Okay, how did we go there? Hands up if you got one. Yep, Andrew. Yeah, that's right. So that is a change. So um, when God gave it, he actually named the tree as the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when Eve repeats it, she didn't name what it was about. Um, And I'm not sure if that one actually, that was the fourth one that I thought, I'm not sure if there was something bad about that or not. Like uh, maybe she just didn't say the name of the tree. So I wasn't going to be too harsh on Eve about that one, but that's good. Yeah, it's not recognising what God called it. So at the very least, it's, something's lost there. Yeah, Three others? May, yep. Yeah, that's right. So that's the second change in there. God had said, don't eat from the tree. But Eve has added in, we're not even allowed to touch the tree. Which is crazy because they're meant to be caring for the whole garden, including, I presume, this tree. And if they accidentally touched it, I don't think they're going to die. So there's this extra, extra restriction So why would you do that? Why would you put in an extra command that God didn't say? She's making up a new rule. I think that she'll perhaps think that this will help her not to sin. If not only does she not eat it, she'll stay right away and not touch it. Christians do that, I think. Um, We make up rules like Christians can't play cards or Christians can't dance or Christians can't drink or Christians can't smoke. And look, it might be wise for you, if you have a particular problem, to decide not to drink. But the Bible doesn't forbid it. And so we shouldn't go making up rules and say, God says this. The Bible is very clear that making up new rules actually doesn't work. So let me read from um, Corinthians. Such regulations have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, extra rules that we make up can't stop us from sinning. Sin is simply too powerful to be stopped by rules. I mean, in the Old Testament, God gave his law, and even that couldn't stop sin. If God's rules can't stop sin, our rules aren't going to. So Eve is being deceived there, isn't she? She's, she's kind of adding in extra rules that God didn't put there. Another difference? Eve has just kind of dropped out this, you will surely die, to basically, you'll die. And see, God has announced certain judgment. There is no doubt about it. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And Eve's watered it down. And in fact, the serpent will water it down even further. In fact, change it right around in the next bit to say, you'll not surely die. But Eve's already taken the first step for him. Eve's already moving in that direction of moving away from God's judgment. She's playing right into his hand. And of course, when we water down the consequences of sin, sin becomes easier, doesn't it? If there's no judgment, why not sin? Um, One more difference, right up at the very start. Yep, yeah, that's right. So God says, and it's really very generous, listen to this, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden except this tree. And Eve has lost, you are free, and she's lost any tree, and now it's just become, we can eat the the, the fruit of the trees. And so it's subtle, but I think it's it's a watering down of God's generosity. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, except this tree. And what does it become? Well, we can eat from the trees, but not this one. So what is happening in this discussion is Eve is slowly but surely being led along to a point where eventually she'll disobey God. If the serpent had just come straight out and said, Eve, God is lying, you won't die, I doubt it would have worked. But this, in this deception, she's being led along with little changes, little bit by little bit. I mean, if the devil came along to you and said, sure, God says no sex before marriage, but God's wrong. Rip that bit out of your Bible. It's not true. You probably wouldn't do it. But when the devil comes along and says, look, God doesn't understand the pressure that is on you. He doesn't really know what's best for you. Other Christians do it. God will forgive you anyway. The person really loves you, suddenly it's starting to not look so bad. Now that's the way the devil works. Hebrews 3 says that sin is deceitful. Ephesians 4 says we have deceitful desires. You can't negotiate with Satan. He'll wear you down. He'll trick you. He'll deceive you. He'll lie to you. You need to run away. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 says flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Run away, get away from it. 2 Timothy 2 says, Flee the evil desires of youth. Eve is not running away. She's having a discussion with the devil about what God really said, and he's feeding her lies, and she's starting to believe them. Now, there's another very quite subtle but dangerous thing to notice about the serpent's question and Eve's reply. All through chapter 2, We saw last week and the week before, it's the personal name of God that is being used to emphasize God's nearness. It's Yahweh. When it says in capital letters, L-O-R-D, God, Lord God, you'll see it there in chapter two, that is God's personal name, like Wayne, Yahweh. But in chapter three, verse one, the serpent has dropped God's name just simply to call him God. It's a bit more distant, isn't it? And Eve swallows it. She responds in three, verse three, and she says, God has said, so it's not by name anymore. She stops using God's name too. And we don't hear God's name, in fact, all through this discussion until verse 8, when Yahweh comes walking in the garden again, and then Adam and Eve are both filled with fear. Now that's very significant, I think, because sin is personal. The nearer that you are to God, the, the closer, the better your relationship with God, the harder sin will become, the harder it will be for Satan to tempt you. I think we even see that with people. It might be very easy to sit by yourself in your office and look at porn on the internet with the door shut, but are you going to do it in the lounge room, in front of your wife, under her nose? No, because there's something relational there. You don't want her to know it. It might be easy for you to gossip about someone, but are you going to do it when they're right next to you listening? No. What, so sinning against God, it's similar, isn't it? Satan wants God to seem distant. A long way away. So Satan drops his name and so does Eve. And so the groundwork is laid. And in verse 4, the serpent comes in for the kill. He has Eve in the palm of his hand. She, She doubts God's nearness. She doubts God's goodness. She thinks God is stingy. She's forgetting the sureness of God's judgment. She's even mixing up God's words. She's not even sure of what he said. What an easy target. And so now the serpent comes out with a complete denial of what God has commanded, verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, God is actually holding back on you. God's not interested in, in what's best for you. He wants to keep his power to himself. If you don't eat from this tree, you are missing out big time. If you do eat from this tree, you'll be like God. And Eve falls for it, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Like we all do when we sin, Eve has now put God right in the background and she is simply consumed with this tree. She's consumed with the fruit. It's good for food. It'll fulfill her physical desires. It's pleasing to the eye. It looks attractive to her. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. If she eats this, she'll be so clever. She'll be so sophisticated. She will have moved forward. And with all that in mind and with God way in the background... She eats it. And then she gives some to her husband, who the passage says was with her. The whole time he's been here watching on, doing nothing, saying nothing. Some leader. And he eats it. And then they're ashamed. And they hide from God. And they're fearful. And next week we will start, we'll unravel all the judgment and the results of sin. But today... I want to ask you this question. How can we not sin? How can we be different to Eve and to Adam? Having seen how Eve is deceived, having seen how wrong sin is, having seen that it's a lie, how can we avoid it? And the first answer is, of course, that we can't. We simply can't. Because ever since this point in history when sin entered the world, we are all slaves to sin. It's like some of those passages Al read earlier. In fact, Romans says, through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Ever since Genesis 3, this is what you and I are like. We all downplay sin. We all distance ourselves from God. We play with God's commands like Eve did and we treat it as a game. We act as if God won't judge sin at times. We all think that we know better than God in certain ways. We all do it. We all choose to follow the devil and believe his lies rather than following God. So how can we beat sin? Well, on our own, we can't. In fact, we're more powerless than Eve because Romans says we're slaves to sin. Adam and Eve at least had free choice about it. We can't beat sin. Romans 8, 7 says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Alone, we cannot beat sin. It'll beat you every time. But thankfully... Jesus can, and he has. And that's why all of us need to come to Jesus and firstly ask for forgiveness for our sin. Because before Jesus could fix sin in our lives to stop us sinning, he had to die to deal with the sin that we've already done. We had to be forgiven for the sin that is in our lives, and Jesus took our sin in his body on the tree when he died. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift given to us by God. And if you put your trust in Jesus and you repent, having been forgiven of your sin, it's only then that we're set free from the power of sin. It's only then after we've been forgiven by Jesus and we have the spirit of God that we can say no to sin. And we can as followers of Jesus, because Jesus, by his death and resurrection, if you repent and trust in him, has set you free from the slavery to sin. Let me read from Romans 6, verse 6. Our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So as Christians, Jesus calls us to not sin. And Genesis 3 gives us some practical ways not to be deceived into sinning, doesn't it? It won't do next time a temptation comes along just to try and resist it on the spot. We've all done that. We've all failed. Because most of the time when the, when the battle to resist temptation happens, we're already way down along the track. We've already swallowed a whole heap of lies. We're losing the battle over here because of what we've done way back here. And so we need to be working way back here on developing a good relationship with God. We need to work way back here on memorizing his word. We need to work way back here on learning to trust that God is good and know that to be true so that when the time comes, we can resist the devil. In fact, All these various ways that we've seen in Genesis 3, that the devil deceives Eve, all those ways that he used, they're all picked up in the New Testament and we are encouraged to be aware of them. So, for example, the biggest one, just the idea that Satan will try to deceive us, the New Testament picks that up in Hebrews 3.13. Don't look it up, but I'll read it to you. You might want to um, look it up later. Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, sin is deceitful. So encourage each other in the truth. Another example, when we're tempted, we need to remember that God is good. He's not stingy. James one thirteen picks up on that when it reminds us of God's goodness in the context of being tempted. James 1 is all about being tempted and remembering that God is good. When we're tempted, we need to stay close to God, unlike Eve. We find that idea picked up in Colossians 3. Paul, in the second half of Colossians, is encouraging the church not to sin. And rather than just give them a list of rules, he points them to Jesus. And he points them to the future judgment. I'll read that bit for you, Colossians 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And with that background, he says, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul wants the Colossians to stop sinning. What does he do? He points them to Jesus, and he points them to God's judgment. He doesn't get into an argument about whether lust and impurity is right or wrong. And when we're tempted, we need to remember God's word. In fact, we'd, be, we'd do very well to memorize it especially to memorize um, particular things that are associated with the particular sins that you struggle with, or particularly to remember things about God's goodness and his generosity. We see that exactly what Jesus did in Luke 4, when he's fighting temptation. He's in the desert, the devil comes to him, the devil says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone and then satan tempts him again again he quotes scripture satan tempts him again again he quotes the bible jesus has scripture memorized that he can quote back to satan rather than being like eve who just tries to remember it on the spot and just messes it up if jesus quotes scripture to fight temptation how much more do we need to it's important to know your enemy If you're a tennis player, you know that it's important to know your opponent, know their strengths, know their weaknesses, know their strategy, know their game plan. A good football team analyzes the opponent's game, knows their strengths and weaknesses. Our enemy is the devil. It's important to know a little bit about him. What we know is that he's pathetic. He's powerless. He's already been defeated by Jesus, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he no longer has any authority over our lives. And yet, he prowls around trying to get us to believe his lies. And that is his power when we believe his lies, when we let him deceive us. So, we need to be aware of his schemes, aware that he will try to deceive you. You don't want to be deceived by the devil, do you? You don't want to be led away to sin by the devil. So you need to be ready. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you, James 4 says. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have all been taken in by the deceit of the devil. At times we've doubted that you're good and we've questioned you and the things that you're doing. At other times we've just let ourselves slowly drift away from you. We don't read your word. We don't pray. We stop meditating on your word and looking to Jesus and sin becomes also much the harder to resist. And Father, other times we've just also gladly gone along with Satan and his lies and given in far too easily to sin. Father, thank you that Jesus forgives us. Thank you not just for what we have done, but what we'll even do today and what we'll do in the future. Father, we're so sorry that we we believe the devil's lies and we doubt you. And we're sorry for the sin that we commit. We thank you that there's forgiveness in Jesus. Thank you that he washes us totally clean. And Father, thank you that Jesus doesn't just call us to nothing, but he calls us to live a life of holiness, a life of godliness, a life where we resist sin. And so, Father, we pray that we might do that. We pray that this week we would work hard at these things that have um, been raised by your word this morning. And for those places in our lives where we are seem to be losing a battle with sin where again and again we're failing in the same areas, we pray that you'd help us to be able to step back, think perhaps about our relationship with you and other strategies we can use to beat the devil. Father, we pray that you would help us to be self-controlled. We pray that you would help us to meditate on your word. We pray that you would help us to resist the devil so that he'd flee from us we pray that you would help us to draw near to you. And thank you for your promise that you will draw near to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.